<laughs> All right, well, let's go ahead and get started. There might be a couple of stragglers coming in. I know Holly is going to be here. She said she was going to be late. I told her that we locked the doors at 6.30, and she reminded me that she has a key. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, let me, let me pray for us. Lord, thanks for uh, this group, and thanks for your word. Thanks for Revelation and the insight that we can gain from it. And I pray that as we learn about the book and over the next few weeks as we learn from the book, uh, as we learn from you through the book, uh, that you would open our hearts and minds to what you want to say to us, uh, that we would get the timeless message of Revelation, that we would understand it in the way you want, it, want us to understand it. So I pray that we'd have a great time and that you would teach us here. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay. So, a couple of, a couple of things as we get started here. The first uh, question that I have for you is, for those of you who were here last week, uh, you've had about a week to reflect and or maybe read some of Revelation. What stood out to you, and let's see, how many of you were not here last week? Is it just Dan and the Bowies? I think everybody else was here, yeah. Uh, so what, what stood out to you from last week? Is there any revelations that you had? <laughs> I didn't, no pun intended. Okay, apparently not. <laughs> well, I, like I told you earlier, um, that there are different groups that approach revelations in a much different way mm -hmm. you know and I said you know is there one that's more right than the other mm -hmm. you know um, I think the answer is yes yeah yeah <laughs> and I'm thinking so too <laughs> and so I have read started to read and with the mindset that you know that I'm just reading another book in the bible I'm not right. trying to put it in a space you know age right. or something Future like time. that and it's yeah. It was a whole different feeling, yeah, and a whole different reading, even, mm. you know. So, what what was different about it? I wasn't approaching it with this um, uh, a feeling that I was reading something that was telling me about the end times, mm -hmm. you know, and that and and. Uh, what all these things were happening, like you know, like the monsters that were going to happen. So I wasn't approaching it like that anymore. I was just approaching it that this is God's word and yeah. He is speaking, you know, to us. Yeah. And and knowing that it was written to the people there back then. Yep. And um, but it's for all of us. Right. You know. Right. And so it was just a whole different approach. Good. What else? Well, I think it continues to be kind of stunning to me. To it's kind of somewhat related to what Linda's saying, but that really it is much, much less predictive mm -hmm. than we've always thought it to be. Right. And and, I, and even today, as I was reading Mormon again, reading the first part, that the that the emphasis in the introduction really should be on verse three. As the mm -hmm. as the purpose of, of the book, rather than on verse nineteen, <laughs> which often is the one that we you know we look at as you know, John is seeing these things is going to tell us what's going to happen in the future, right. which really isn't isn't there as much.
much as as we've been led to believe. I think over right. more than years. Yep. Yeah, it's a it's a misunderstanding of prophecy. Yeah. Not that prophecy never tells the future. Sometimes it does. Uh, but in general, prophecy is there to issue warnings, uh, ethical instruction, um, and promises that that God is all powerful and that God will win in the end. Um, and so it's you know both a warning and also an encouragement to the people that it's written to. Um, sometimes that mean, that it means that it'll say, well, there uh, you know I'm going to send the Messiah. Uh, years from now, and that's a that's a future event. But most of the time, it has to do with what's happening in the context of the people that the book is written to to begin with, and that's that's the case with Revelation mm-hmm. as well. Okay, well, I just say um, that it was really interesting, kind of reflecting on last week about and my education and study. I was an English major and one of the things that drew me to that to um, that 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 I kind of studied there at the toward the end of my time in college was that there's a way of reading literature that's um, talk it's called new historicism and what the idea is you read a story and you analyze it based on other like primary sources or stories or historical events that happened in the time of its writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was amazed um, just by how much, like, um, and also about the, like, if it's if it's a story that's written about a time period. Right. And you can also read it, read it within that. And I was amazed at how much insight and interesting kind of nuances showed up in people's writing because of what was happening at the time it was, being written right and that just really resonates with me always with the bible that there is an audience and it's not us in the 21st century but the bible is written for us but it's not written to us right just that's real cool yeah it stood out to me when i was rereading how much like i've read all of revelation but I, i feel like i have so often disconnected the letters to the churches from the rest of the book. Right. Almost treating them as two completely separate parts rather than a connected whole. Yeah. And I think it struck me the, the um, note about looking at it as um, helping, telling us about Christ. And, you know, <clears throat> not saying it quite right, but I mean, yeah. Just the idea that we're reflecting on this is, this is um, like a description or whatever of Christ and mm-hmm. how we look at it. Christ is a central figure. Yeah. Uh, and actually, Christ as the, uh, the slain lamb, uh, that's, that's the central figure of Revelation. And, and that is in opposition to empire, which uh, asserts its... Uh, will through force and power and coercion and military might um, while Christ exerts his will through the power of self-sacrifice, self-sacrificial love. Um, Alright, so probably three of you who are here are thinking, what in the world are they talking about? <laughs> um, I guess maybe...
but just because um, I want to kind of get a sense of, of where you are with the book of Revelation. Like, what's been your experience with the book of Revelation in the past, uh, growing up? What, ha- what have you assumed about Revelation, or how have you read it? once if not like two or three times but like I don't really remember anything from reading it mm-hmm. that like I picked it up it's kind of been something that's been there and I've known about it and I know a lot of people are super interested in it but I've, I've been more concerned about more practical things that at least have been more influential in my life versus something that's I've heard predicts when Jesus is coming back. And I'm kind of like, well, when he comes back, he comes back, and I shouldn't be living. I should be living just as good as I would be if he is coming back right. and, and, and versus if he isn't yet coming back. So. Sure, yeah. Yeah, so, you, so you've largely just not paid attention to it for a long time because you just At least didn't, not detailed attention. Yeah, because you didn't really think it was very practical. Um... I haven't, like, I haven't heard people talk about, oh, this is a super practical thing. It's more of a, right. I just really haven't really yeah. heard anything or, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, good. I mean, not good, but yeah. great. Thank <laughs> you. <Good. laughs> I don't have a lot of experience. I, I've read, I just recently read, read the book and, um, I, I, I don't even know what I think of it. It was, <laughs> it was a lot of imagery, and um, and of course I, uh, you know, I, I've heard everything that people have had to say about about Revelation. It's not been horribly positive, but um, but you know, coming from my background, like I was steeped in so much cynicism towards the Bible that I. I really am always going to give everything like the benefit of the doubt because I was always told that every you know my, was I was taught that that was all craziness and right like not just Revelation but all of the Bible all the Bible yeah. but I remember my dad telling me that Revelation that told me a bunch of popes got together and voted on what books were going to be in and what weren't right, yeah. and, and I was like. Sure. I don't know. Like, and so he's like, so you don't need to worry about Revelation because it's just you know something they threw in there to scare you. <laughs> it was a theologian, you know, so it yeah. was yeah. not. All right, thanks. Tom, what about you? Uh, I have not read the whole book. I've, I've recently read part of it. Um, I've read a lot of the Bible, but not every book, every part of the Bible, and I'm here to learn. I'm not scared of any imagery I've heard of because I haven't evaluated it, and um, that may sound a little strange to say it evaluated it, but my faith is like... I'm not scared of one. So, um, so you don't. So you don't really have any strong opinions about it, just because you don't feel like you know a lot about it. 
Dr. Rick. I know, know a lot about the book. Yeah. Okay. So. All right. So let's go through and let's review for the sake of the people who weren't here and also for the sake of the rest of you. Maybe um, you guys didn't don't remember it too much or maybe there are some details that we can get by and then it'll kind of set the table for the rest of what we're doing here today. You know, we talked about at the very beginning about how people have interpreted it throughout history and they've interpreted it in some pretty wild ways and I actually came across this quote, I sent it to Bill last night, um, from G.K. Chesterton who is always good for quotes. Yes. Uh, he said, Through Saint John the Evan- uh, though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, I don't know if you were referring to that, you were thinking that about me, or, <laughs> yes. or you were yes. looking in the mirror, maybe. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I just thought it was funny. Yeah. Uh, all right. So the the gist of it is, is if you have if you've read Left Behind or the Late Great Planet Earth or have heard dispensationalist theology things like that, what I want you to do is I want you to set that aside for the sake of this class. Just like Linda said that as she was reading Revelation, she read it with different eyes, and it made all the difference in the world. And so what I hope you do is I I hope you're able to set that aside. Now, maybe in the end you'll decide, no, I think, you know, dispensationalist theology is the right way to read it. Go back and do that. Be my guest. I don't think it is. Uh, So I'm just going to show my cards here. Uh, I I think this is a a better reading of it. I think it's more true to to good biblical hermeneutics. And hermeneutics means <laughs> the uh, the systematic study of the Bible basically it's it's you it's applying good methods to study the Bible so that you understand it in the way that God meant it to be understood so that was that was for Nate because Nate <laughs> <laughs> um, so so here here's what I wrote for review what most of us experience with the book of Revelation is actually a recent interpretation it really only started in the 1830s by a the guy who actually started the Plymouth Brethren denomination named J.N. Darby. And I actually read this week that he originally came up with the idea of rapture because he went to a healing service one time and there was a young girl who had a vision of two comings of Christ. And he interpreted that as went to First Thessalonians chapter 4 where it talks about people being taken up in the air with Christ. And he interpreted that as the rapture as this sort of silent or secretive sort of time when Jesus came, took the believers out of the world, and then, of course, the tribulation happens after that, and then Christ will come back again. Well, the truth of the matter is, is the Bible doesn't talk, well, it does talk about two comings of Christ. The first one was Christmas, and then the <laughs> second one will be Judgment Day. Uh, and, and so what you'll see is, is that the rapture is actually not biblical. If you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in fact... What you'll see is that event is not some silent thing where cars are suddenly unmanned and clothes, you know, fall on the ground and all of that. But it's actually a very loud public event. In other words, like the whole world knows that it's happening. So if it is a rapture, it's much different than what Left Behind would lead you to believe. Uh, But anyway, nobody had any idea about a rapture like that until after, after Darby in 1830. Now, that doesn't mean that there wasn't other interpreters that didn't try to see, uh, that didn't see Revelation as predictive of the future, 
There certainly was, and there were people before that who tried to put dates on it and would would look at the imagery and try to correlate it to events that were happening during that time. But as far as a, a like a system of interpretation and revelation, it was actually not it was actually not something that that happened before 1830. And one of the problems with it is is that this theology ignores good biblical hermeneutics, right? Remember what, what's biblical hermeneutics? Study of the Bible. Study of the Bible, yeah, it's principles. And, and the number one principle of good biblical hermeneutics is to remember that the Bible was written for us, for, for us but not to, to us. not to us. It was written at a particular time to a particular audience addressing a particular situation. And we read every other book of the Bible in that way, except when it comes to Revelation, for the last 200 years, we've just kind of thrown it, actually longer than that, we've just kind of thrown good biblical hermeneutics out the window, and it's been a biblical free-for-all with the book of Revelation. But when you start to sit down with it, and you go, we're going to read Revelation the same way we read other books, including the Old Testament prophets, then it starts to look a little bit different. Uh, the, the genre, if we read it according to genre, and that's the, the second piece of good biblical hermeneutics, you have to read it for what it was written to be. So you interpret poetry as poetry, you interpret narrative as narrative, you interpret parables as parables, um, you interpret law as law, and you interpret prophecy and apocalyptic as prophecy and apocalyptic. And that means that there are certain ways that you think about it. Now, apocalypse, of course, doesn't mean the end of the world. Apocalypse just means a revelation. And actually, I think a good image to think about the book of Revelation is to think about it as a book that is in its first century context, uh, around 95 or 96 AD. But what John is doing is it's almost like he's pulling open the curtains uh, of heaven. Or think about the Wizard of Oz, right? Uh, and you see Oz on the outside, but then they pull open the curtains and you get to see who's like pulling the strings and pulling the levers, right? That's what Revelation is, saying that it's, it's Jesus pulling open the curtains of heaven so you can see the inner workings, this sort of battle that is happening in the heavens that is causing these events uh, in you know, the temporal space to happen. And so that's what, that's what Revelation means. It's an insight into God's perspective on the world. Uh, it reads like a political cartoon. That's a part of apocalyptic literature. So if you think about a, a political cartoon, in, in America we have, uh, we have donkeys that represent... You guys got this last week. Democrats. Democrats. We have uh, uh, I did it. I did it the same. Republicans. <laughs> we have elephants represent that represent Republicans, elephants. and we have the guy in the top hat with the stars and stripes, and that is Uncle Sam. Uncle Sam. Sam. He, and he represents America. the government. Yeah, American government. American government. Yeah. Um, and and so a lot of it is, or if you think about like the the images in political cartoons, a lot of the figures are exaggerated. And so, you know, some of them have these huge noses or big ears or whatever feature they have. It's just, it's, it's an extreme form, okay? And that was Jewish apocalyptic. It's, everything is uh, exaggerated, it's hyperbole, it's, it's done to, to make a, a very strong point, right? So read uh, Revelation like a political cartoon, and it addresses the reader, the, 
reader's original situation, but you have to understand that it's applicable even to today, just like every other book, right? The book of Ephesians addresses the situations that were going on in those churches at the time. The Old Testament prophets were written to Judah, or they were written to Israel, or written to one of the oppressing nations. Uh, but they have benefits for us as we read them. And so, in a sense, they're situated in a particular time, but in another sense, they're timeless, and that's how we can benefit from them. A Jewish apocalyptic is also written typically to oppressed groups to encourage them in the face of empire. Now, if you remember, we went to Daniel chapter 7, and we read through that, that whole chapter last week, and it talks about uh, Daniel has this vision, and it's of all these empires, these succeeding empires, one after another, and in the end, it ends up in the throne room of God, that, and it's basically you know, Daniel having this vision that, that, yes, it seems like these empires are all powerful right now, and they're persecuting the people of God, but understand that God is in control, and God will win in the end. And, and so it's written to oppressed groups in order to encourage them for the future. Uh, and so when we read it, the point for us is not to correlate current events with the imagery that we see in the book of Revelation. Uh, locusts are not attack helicopters, um, like are oftentimes, uh, are oftentimes uh, said to be. And, and there are you know, lots, of other, lots of other things. Uh, the other thing you need to understand is that John actually never quotes the Old Testament, but you see hundreds and hundreds of allusions to the Old Testament. The, the Hebrew scriptures were the, the lens or the way that he thought about the world. And so he was writing, um, and you know, or God was dictating to him, and he was writing in language that he understood from the Old Testament prophets. And so you'll see a lot of correlations between the book of Revelation and the Old Testament prophets. And then, of course, Richard Bauckham says that Revelation answers the question, who is the Lord over the world? Okay, that's a, is that a good review? Mm -hmm. Anything I missed? Okay. New people, do you kind of get what I'm saying here? Okay. So we're going to try to read it well. Now... Starting next week, we're going to actually go into the text of Revelation. We've got one more. Today is going to be another background thing for us, because I think it's really important for us as we read Revelation, if it was written to a particular group at a particular situation, it's good that we understand the situation that was going on that, that John is addressing to the people. So the book of Revelation says that it was written by John. Now, who is John? Can anyone tell me? The disciple Jesus loved. The disciple Jesus loved, okay. Anyone else? Thunder. Uh, Son of Thunder. Well, my Bible, uh, you know, it tries to provide historical context behind different aspects of uh, things you read. Uh, possibly a uh, Palestinian Jewish Christian who fled to the... Uh, to the diaspora as a consequence of the first Jewish revolt against the Romans. Okay. Um, most scholars believe that it was not the Apostle John. Uh, and that was starting way back with Justin Martyr. I think Justin Martyr was in the second or third century. 
Um, and there are a couple of reasons why. Number one, he, he doesn't say that he knew Jesus personally. And usually when the writers of the Bible uh, purport to be apostles, and I believe most of them when they say they are, that they are, uh, they, they, say, they basically make it clear, I knew Jesus personally, and so I have the authority to be able to write something like this. And John, uh, who wrote Revelation, never says that. The other thing is, is when he is uh, picturing the throne room of heaven, he pictures uh, the 24 elders, 12 of them being the apostles, and he doesn't include himself in that group of apostles. And so uh, what most commentators will say is that the best we can, the best we can do is, is that John was a leader in the church in Asia. He was probably a prophet that would go around to the various churches, because obviously he was familiar with uh, all of the, the churches in Asia, and uh, was probably in Asia, and uh, most would all, well, there, there's kind of disagreement, or there, there's questions about whether he was actually exiled there, because he doesn't say specifically he's exiled. It's a, it's a possibility, and I, I think maybe most commentators will say that he was exiled there, that he was basically being persecuted uh, for speaking out for, for Jesus. But others say that he might have just gone there to get away from the persecution. He might have gone there to receive the vision, something like that. Uh, but in any case, uh, most scholars don't think that it was actually the Apostle John. Now, is that troubling to anyone? Do you know Does it matter? Song, do you know the song, John the River Leader? What does that mean? He's the John who... He, He's John, the Revelation. He John? John the Apostle. Right. right. John who wrote Revelation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is that what it's saying? He's John that read, wrote Revelation? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. the kids sang that song when they were teenagers. And... Yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> well, I, I don't know that it's necessarily troubling to me beyond the number of times that, that I have said. <laughs> As a pastor. When you said that, I looked back and my, my Bible says probably John. Yeah. So I don't know yeah, the, the apostle. So I don't know if, I don't know. I, I haven't heard most, but I also haven't done that much scholarly yeah. research on Revelation to know. I mean, I think if you, if you, if you say when, when you're, you know, preaching from the book of Revelation that the person who wrote this was the same person that wrote the Gospel of John and those right. letters, it, it, it lends a bit more credence, perhaps, right. to Revelation. But yeah. um, beyond that, it's... Um, yeah. it's, it's interesting that, that he's writing this, but we don't know anything about him. We don't, you know, there's nowhere where, you have a, where, where he's come up in a kind of, or, and, or in the Bible anywhere. Yeah, and yeah. even at the beginning here, um, Jesus doesn't um, address him as someone like he knows, like right. a, a one, the yeah, one I love. Yeah, he doesn't I say, hey, remember that something. time that you laid your head on my chest when we were having dinner? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so we, I mean, I never really thought about it, but yeah, there's no reason to believe that he was yeah. the apostle. The whole, the one... The one that Jesus loved signature isn't really written in there for right. himself. Well, to be fair, this was like written in 1890-something, so like a while after the Gospel of John was written, maybe he matured out of it. Maybe that. he had a little bit of, <laughs> gained a little perspective. Yeah. Age does that. Yeah. 
Yeah, if it, if it was the Apostle John, then he would have been really, really old, especially for that time. Yeah, yeah, he would have been, been old. Not, not unheard, it wouldn't have been, been unheard of. But there are a lot of... He would have been in his 90s at least, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, he's probably younger than Jesus. Yeah, there are a lot yeah, of... Still 80s, not... Yeah. Still so like 80s, close to 90s mm-hmm. at least. Pretty good. I've heard some Orthodox theology stuff from my uncle that talk about John being really young, like a teenager. Yeah. Or like an early teenager. Um very young young guy when Jesus called him. Yeah. Um, I don't know the yeah. efficacy. That, that, that seems whatever, that but. seems to be a pretty pretty common belief among biblical scholars. That we know that he, We also knew that he beat Peter in the race. Peter went out too fast and then John <laughs> yeah, got sure. to the tomb first. So he had he had more endurance. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, Regardless of whether you, that bothers you or not, uh, it's, it's, it's likely that it's actually not John the Apostle that wrote it. But I, also, I don't think it really matters. You know, what matters is, is the, the inspiration of God, and I do believe that it's an inspired book. That, that when he says that Jesus revealed this to me, and the church affirmed that when it put together the canon... Allison, uh, <laughs> then, you know, I, I believe that, it, that it's an inspired book, uh, which, uh, incidentally, Martin Luther did not believe that it was an inspired book. And actually, lots of people didn't believe it was an inspired book. It barely made it into the canon, because people didn't know what to do with it. Really? So, and understandably so. Uh, so anyway, it says John was on the island of Patmos. Uh, many believe he was in exile. That's not certain. Uh, it's certainly very possible. Uh, John wrote down what was revealed to him by Jesus through an angel. Uh, and he wrote to the seven churches in the province of Asia. So this is the audience. We know the author, kind of, and now we know the audience. This is who he was writing to. Now, I mentioned last week that these were likely the same churches or many of the same people that Peter wrote to when he wrote the book of 1 Peter that he was addressing, only it was like 35 years later, because Peter wrote, well, 30 years later, because I think Peter wrote in 60 to 64 or something like, somewhere in there, so, you know, 30 to 35 years later, but it's many of the same churches, and actually there were, there were Jews in that area, or Jewish Christians in that area, likely for two reasons. Number one, would have been, and I think, Nate, did you, you said something about, um, about war in Palestine, and, and actually that was, that was going on in 66 to 70 AD, the emperor Titus laid siege to Jerusalem and ultimately destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and, you know, there was a Jewish revolt, and that was what sort of sparked that. But then a lot of Jews were displaced because of that, and so they were sent to Asia. Uh, it's also true that I think around the same time, the mid-60s, or early 60s, that the emperor Claudius, maybe I've got my dates wrong. Yeah, that, that the emperor Claudius also expelled Jews and Christians from the city of Rome, and many of them ended up going to the provinces or the cities in Asia. And so they were outcasts in a time when people didn't generally leave their birthplace. They stayed 
in their home for most of their lives to be displaced like that was a pretty significant deal. And it became, and it was very difficult when you got displaced to another place to be accepted in the social fabric of that place. And so, as Peter talks about them, they were exiles that were living there. Now, 30, 35 years later, they might have had the opportunity to feel a little bit more comfortable, and actually there's some evidence that that was happening in some of these cities. Uh, but, but they were displaced. They hadn't been there for super long. They were outsiders in uh, cities that had been settled long, long ago. And there were actually more than seven churches in Asia, but John wrote to seven of them, and he writes to them, and I think he, again, most scholars would say that he, he lists seven of them because seven represents completeness. Mm -hmm. And so what they're saying is, is that he's actually writing to all the churches, but he's using these seven churches as examples of, of instruction that he's trying to give. And, and actually, Bill is going to lead us through those, uh, those seven churches next week. And, and these, these writings would have been passed to all the churches, mm -hmm. just like everything else had been passed to all the churches. Right, yeah. So, so it, would be, it would seem strange that, that John would write a letter to the seven churches and then only give it, give it to one. Right. 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 So it would have been probably copied. Uh, maybe he, he might have had someone who, a messenger, because obviously he was exiled, so he couldn't go himself. So he would have a messenger who would deliver the, the letter. And like we said last week, it was likely read by this messenger or even acted out and performed by this messenger because it's actually, many believe it's a liturgical document. It's meant for Christian worship. There are lots of uh, songs and poems and, and things in there that's, that are intended for that. And, uh, and so um, he would have brought it around to all of the churches and, yeah, he would have given instructions. Okay? Everybody with me so far? Mm -hmm. Okay. It was likely written sometime in the 90s, in the mid-90s, under the reign of Emperor Domitian. Now, that's, it's kind of a significant thing that, that we know somewhat what was going on during, during the time. Because there's kind of a narrative, there's been a narrative in, uh, in many circles and, and certainly in pop, popular Christian teaching that the Roman Empire was just an absolute bloodbath for Christians. That they were just being persecuted and killed left and right and you know, the authorities were seeking them out and throwing them to the lions and all of that. And the truth of the matter is, is generally that was not the case. There were short bits of time, like under Decius and Gaius, a couple of other emperors, usually later. Nero had a, had a, a time when he was persecuting Christians and that. But in general, they were, they were not being persecuted uh, there was no state-sponsored persecution of Christians, no, at least not, you know, all throughout the Roman Empire. Most of the persecution that Christians were experiencing was local, oftentimes, uh, or sometimes, I would say, it was at the hands of the Jews who were in the city. Uh, but sometimes, and, and actually, I, did, I, did I include the letter from Pliny? Yep. Okay. Yep. Let's go through that letter, because I, I think it gives you a little sense 
of what was going on in the Roman Empire. This was sort of the general tenor. Now, keep in mind that this letter was written in 112, which would be, what's that, 20-some, almost 20 years after the, the book of John was written. So, or book of Revelation was written. So it, it, it may not have been exactly the same, but he does actually refer back to a time 25 years before when Christians had given up their faith. Okay, so I'm just going to go through it, and, uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it here. Now, this is, it's a letter that was written by governor Pliny, uh, the governor of Bithynia named Pliny the Younger to Emperor Trajan, and he's seeking advice from the emperor about what to do. I've made it a rule, Lord, and, and there are some notes here as well. I've made it a rule, Lord, to refer everything to you about which I am in doubt. For who could better provide direction for my hesitations or instructions for my lack of knowledge? I have never been present at the interrogation of Christians. Therefore, I do not know how far such investigation should be pushed and what sort of punishments are appropriate. I've also been uncertain as to whether age makes any difference or whether the very young are dealt with the same way as adults, whether repentance and renunciation of Christianity is sufficient or whether the accused are still considered criminals because they were once Christians, even if they later renounced it, and whether persons are to be punished simply for the name Christian, even if no criminal act has been committed, or whether only crimes associated with the name are to be punished. In the meantime, I have handled those who have been denounced to me as Christians as follows. I asked them whether they were Christians. Those who responded affirmatively, I asked a second and a third time under the threat of the death, uh, pe death penalty. If they persisted in their confession, I had them executed. For whatever it is they are actually advocating, it seems to me that obstinacy and stubbornness must be punished in any case. Others who labor... Yeah, isn't that... Uh, Others who labor under the same delusion, but who were Roman citizens, I have designated to be sent to Rome. So Roman citizens had special rights. And we saw this in the story of, of Paul right. when he appealed to, to Nero. They have special rights. In the course of the investigations, as it usually happens, charges are brought against wider circles of people and the following special cases have emerged. In other words, what's happening is, is neighbors are complaining about these Christians. And sometimes they complain about individuals, sometimes they complain about whole groups of them. And so the officials who are in the town have to go and investigate. So what's happening is the officials, like they don't have Christian police that are going out and searching out Christians, but if a neighbor complains and says, hey, these Christians are causing trouble, then they're going to go in and they're going to investigate. And that's what Pliny is talking about. Uh, an unsigned placard was posted accusing a large number of people by name. Those who denied being Christians now or in the past, I thought necessary to release since they invoked our gods according to the formula I gave them, and since they offered sacrifices of wine and incense before your image, which I had bought, brought in for this purpose, along with the statues of our gods. I also had them curse Christ. It is said that real Christians cannot be forced to do any of these things." Mm -hmm. Others, charged by this accusation, at first admitted that they had once been Christians but had already renounced it. They had, in fact, been Christians but had given it up, some of them years ago, some even earlier, some as long as 25 years ago. And, and uh, boring notes 
that this would be around the time of Domitian. All of these worshipped your image and the statues of the gods and cursed Christ. They verified, however, that their entire guilt or error consisted in the fact that on a specific day before sunrise, they were accustomed to gather and sing antiphonal hymn to Christ as their God and to pledge themselves by an oath not to engage in any crime, which is kind of interesting, right? They're being accused, but one of their pledges is, is we're not going to commit any crimes. Uh, but to abstain from all thievery, assault, and adultery, not to break their word once they had given it, and not to refuse to pay their legal debts. What terrible people. Uh, then they went their separate, separate ways and came together later to eat a common meal, but it was ordinary harmless food. They discontinued even this practice in accordance with my edict, by which I had forbidden political associations in accordance with your instructions. I considered it all the more necessary to obtain by torture a confession of the truth from two female slaves whom they called deaconesses. I found nothing more than a vulgar, excessive superstition. Thus, I thus adjourned further hearings in order to seek counsel from you. The matter seems to me in need of good counsel, especially in view of the large number of accused. So again, neighbors were accusing them uh, of being Christians. Um, and... And actually, the accusation was not necessarily that they worship Jesus. The accusation was they don't buy into our imperial religion. They, they're not one of us. And I guess in one way you could say they're unpatriotic. Because for many of them, the, their worship was to the emperor. Or at least the emperor was part of their worship. There was the Roman gods, but it was also the emperor, and there was the emperor cult. And it was part of all of the civic ceremonies and, and so much of what they did in those days, whether you were in a, a trade guild, so like if you were a blacksmith or if you were um, whatever, a, 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 a tailor or a baker or something like that, they had these trade guilds and you could only do commerce if you were a part of one of these guilds. But as being part of one of these guilds, oftentimes they would offer sacrifices to the gods or to the emperor. They would do these religious rites. And so just to be a part of Roman society meant that you had to engage in these religious ceremonies. And the Christians, at least many of them, refused to do that. And so people you know, were saying, well, they're stubborn. Why don't, why don't they just you know, make the sacrifice? Why don't they just light some incense? Why can't they just be one of us? Is, is kind of what the question is, right? Um, the matter seems to me in need of a good counsel, especially in view of the large number of accused. For many of every age and class of both sexes are in danger of prosecution, both now and in the future. The plague of this superstition has spread not only in the cities, but through villages and the countryside. But I believe a stop can be made and a remedy provided. In any case, it is now quite clear that the temples, almost deserted previously, are gradually gaining more and more visitors. The long-neglected sacred festivals are again regularly observed, and the set sacrificial meat, for which buyers had been hard to find, is again being purchased. From this, one can easily see what an improvement can be made in the masses when one gives room for repentance. Interesting, huh? <laughs> So in other words, they're saying that Christianity was spreading so fast that it was, it was hurting business in the temple. People weren't going to the temples. They weren't buying the meat that was sacrificed to idols. And, but now Pliny was saying, well, it seems like our methods are working. 
we've been, you know, threatening death with these Christians, and many of them are giving that up, and they're coming back to the temple. So it seems to be working. So here's the emperor's response. My Secundus, you have chosen the right way with regard to the cases of those who have been accused before you as Christians. Nothing exists that can be considered a universal norm in such cases. In other words, you have to deal with it on a case-by-case basis. Christians should not be sought out, but if they are accused and handed over, they are to be punished, but only if they do not deny being Christians and demonstrate it by the appropriate act. In other words, the worship of our gods. Even if one is suspect, suspect because of past conduct, he or she is to be acquitted in view of repentance. In other words, if they deny Christ, then they, they can be let go. Anonymous accusations may not be considered in any trial, for that would be a dangerous precedent. I agree. Uh, and does not fit our times. All right, so what do you make of that? Does that kind of shed light on, on what's going on? With Christians in the Roman Empire? Empire? Seems like persecution to me. What's that? Seems like persecution to me. But you're right, not like the government sending spies into religious gatherings like Mm -hmm. to try to collect names. Mm -hmm. It's more like a homeowner's association. (laughs) (laughs) Only if the neighbors complain. With a... Extreme military might. <laughs> right. Yeah, if, if, homo, if the Homeowners Association was able to execute people. <laughs> For stubbornness. For stubbornness and obstinacy. Yeah. I just thought that there's like two parts that are very ironic. Okay. The part where he's like, these people make a commitment not to do any criminal acts and stuff. Yeah. It's like super ironic for him calling them like criminals and stuff. And then the last part is them talking about giving room for repentance. And I'm like, those two just struck me as very ironic yeah. being in this letter to um, basically attack Christians. Yeah. Or it gives legal right to persecute Christians who have been called out. Yeah. So why do you think Christians would have been seen as either unpatriotic or in, in many ways seen as a, a threat to the empire? They didn't, you know, they weren't criminals in that sense. Right? Why, were they, why were they seen as a, as a threat to the common good? They seem like decent people to us, well, right? it was gaining momentum, I would think. What's that? If it was gaining momentum, I could see where they would get anxious about. Sure. It also, um, I gravitate to where it's talking about how it's in all, in every class and sex and, like, it's not, lim- like, there are all kinds of people who are falling for this like mm-hmm. how do we stop this like because yeah. it's it's gaining momentum and it's not just like those uh those uh, guys from that province in greece are believing this weird thing yeah we could go and find all them and and uh convince them otherwise yeah. or, or scare them enough but if it's any type of person then how can you stop something yeah I mean, some of it could have been the precedent that's been set by a lot of Jewish rebellions and Christianity being associated by coming from Judaism, that obviously there had been the Maccabean revolt, the revolt that led to the destruction of the temple, um, everything that had happened that had resulted in the Jews being kicked out of Rome, 
that they just kind of are on a little bit higher watch, even if the Christians aren't acting out, the fact that they're growing in numbers is a potential concern right. for the Roman Empire. Sure, sure. Nate. Yeah, and maybe, uh, you know, the emperors then were deified, you know, like they were gods. Uh, and I, I, I'm guessing maybe that they were threatened by, you know, like, you're not, no longer being subservient to me anymore, you're worshiping somebody else, I need you to worship me. I don't know. Since, since we've established that they aren't aggressively pursuing Christians, it sounds to me like, um, okay, the neighbors make a complaint, they've been a couple of complaints or whatever, enough that, you know, and, the, and they're Roman citizens maybe, so they, they feel that they have to do something. They, so they go out and they get them and they bring them in. But so now what are we going to do with them? I can't send them back home because the neighbors are going to complain again. So it doesn't sound to me like like they're out necessarily to get them, but they're more they're more interested or their their concern is they don't want people um, upset and and which and they have a memory of what that happened before so they don't want that to happen so they've got to do something with these people so you know this is what we're going to do it it just doesn't plus they're they're a group of people they can't be bribed you know they they uh are committed to their faith and so how else do we deal with them what do we do with them so i have a little bit different sure view i guess you know i think I think in general what you can say is is that they were they were a threat to the proper governance of the empire. The Roman Empire was a, a big place and very hard to govern. And so what they had to do was number one, they, they did it at the tip of a sword. It was a it was a military the, the peace of Rome was actually maintained through extreme violence, ironically enough, right? The, the threat of violence. But it was also maintained through the threat of prosperity and economic progress. And oftentimes, like you see, you hear examples of provinces and a number of the cities, this is the case, a number of the cities, Pergamum and Ephesus and Smyrna, that they would offer to build statues or monuments of the emperor. They would write, you, they'd write letters to him and say, can we, can we build a statue in your honor in our city? And what they're trying to do is, is they're trying to get favor from the emperor. Mm. And, and so it becomes this sort of system of mutual reinforcement, right? The emperor threats, threatens violence, against people who don't fall in line, but also promises economic reward and prosperity and favor in courts and all of that, as long as people give worship or give deference to him as emperor. I mean, think about, think about how vulnerable, vulnerable of a position being the Roman emperor is, unless the whole system is set up to prop you up. You're one person, and 
and there's, there has to be this whole system of empire that, that buys into this same myth in order, to, in order to keep you in power or in order to keep the order in the empire. And so now, all of a sudden, you have this group of people who seems to be growing, who don't bow down to you, who don't give deference to you, and you can see why they say, well, they're unpatriotic. They're, they're a threat to the empire. Because, man, if people stop bowing to the emperor or showing deference to the empire, this whole thing falls apart. And there's going to be violence. It may not even be the Christians who started, but there's going to be violence. And so they were, they were a threat to the empire if this continued on. This was like, a, you know, it was like a, starting to boil the water with the Christians. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. This was the early stages of Nero. Kind of. And then, then the pot's really boiling right. against Christians. But this is kind of step one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. But these people have, I mean, we have the Bible, so we know the whole picture. But these people have had um, an understanding of Jesus in his time. And had it, it. some of it reminds me a little bit of the Pharisees and such going after Jesus yeah. and trying to do it quietly and stealthily. Yeah. I mean, I, I think they would have so because... So I wondered if that factored into to that at all. Yeah, they, they wouldn't have had all the books of the New Testament, mm -hmm. but... They had Peter, you know, First Peter and Second Peter, and um, the Galatians was written early, and, and Galatians is a city that's close by. There was probably circulated around. So they would understand that Christianity revolved around Jesus. Yes. Okay. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, because that because that you know that was the question: would they would they curse Christ? And you know what what yeah. Pliny was saying was you know it said that a real Christian would never do that. So yeah, they knew they knew Christ was the was the center. Um, so the emperor was supreme, and this whole system was set up to to prop up the emperor. And you know, probably some people did believe that he was divine, and and there were. There were some emperors who didn't claim to be divine, but other people would place that on them to, again, to, to prop them up, to, to uh, grease the, uh, what do you say, grease their, their palms, basically. Um, and so most of the emperors, while they didn't claim it for themselves, they allowed other people to claim it for them. They, they didn't squash that. They allowed these statues to be built to them and honor to be paid to them and coins to have their images and, and things like that. Some of them just claimed it outright. Caesar Augustus, you know, took the name of Augustus, which means God, basically. And in fact, um, in, in Asia, the, the province of Asia in, I think it was 9 BC, I'm trying to remember exactly what, but around 9 BC, when Caesar Augustus when Augustus was Caesar, they redid their calendar to start at the year of his birth. And so everything was around him, and, and they... Um, and he made, uh, he made a decree at one point that all official empire documents had to start with... Um, had to start with... Oh man, I'm trying to remember what it was. Something like 
Hail Caesar, Son of God. Yes. Yeah, something like that. It's talking about Caesar as the Son of God. And, uh, and also, it was, it was announced, and I don't remember who it was, but it was one of his, one of his subjects, um, announced him by saying that his birth was the beginning of the good news. The beginning oh, of the, the gospel. The gospel. And he was seen as being the, the benefactor or the savior of all people. Right. Does that language sound familiar to you? It should. Yeah. Um, and so, when you start to see, when you start to hear what's going on at the time when John is writing this, and you start to see some of the things that he's writing here, for instance, when you see in chapters 4 and 5 that God is sitting on the throne... What is that saying? <laughs> that Rome doesn't have the power that they think they have. Rome does not have the power that they think they have. Caesar Augustus, or whoever the emperor at the time, is not the savior of the world, not the benefactor of the yeah. world. It's the, it's, our, it's the creator, God, who is the real, real one. Now, imagine you were one of those Christians who were being accused by your neighbors and then being interrogated by Pliny. And you read the book of Revelation. Or you read the, the, the scene... The, or, yeah, well, yeah, the letter. Yeah, the, the letter from John. And there's this picture of the throne room of heaven. There's a picture of the beast um, who... Uh, I'll, I'll give it away. Actually, I gave it away last week. There we go. <laughs> um, the beast who uh, represents either the emperor or the empire. It kind of goes back and forth with those. That's given power by the dragon who represents Satan. Right? What is, what is John saying? And, and you see the dragon being cast into the sea along with the beast and the second beast. Hang in there. Yeah. There's, yeah. yeah, they're they're going to be annihilated. They'll, they'll they will be no more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> so to speak. And and it's the same with with uh, for those of you who were last week with Revelation chapter seven. When when Daniel writes this, oh yeah, there are these four emp empires that are coming: the Medes and the Persians and the Babylonians and the Romans. And you know what? All of them are subject to the King of the Universe, the real King. Yeah. The real, I don't know if you'd say emperor, king. So then, you, when you start to read Revelation in light of this, then it starts to look a whole lot different. But then what you have to do is, is you have to say, well, we don't live in those times. We, well, we don't have an emperor necessarily. But are there some similarities to the situation that, that we are in today? Because if you go, well, let's, let's see, what was it that the early Christians were going through? How was John addressing them? And then we can go, okay, so what are the similarities to our time? Um, I, let, me, let me hand this out to you here. This is from Scott McKnight's book, Revelation for the Rest of Us, as Anne let me know last week. Let me know if you don't have enough. Hopefully there's enough. So, 
question for you as those are being passed out. If John is talking about the Roman Empire, why doesn't he not just call it the Roman Empire? Why does he call it Babylon? Well, I think in the exchange that you had with Linda a bit ago about how the letter got out to the churches, um, there had to have been some level of, what would be the word, subversion, I guess you might say, secrecy, oh, sure. in terms of trying to, right. to not have it be out in the open about sure. what, was, what was being spoken. Yeah. So uh, maybe that was maybe that's part of it. Could be could be some of it. Yeah. Um, although I know at least one commentator pointed out that the references that he makes the, the city on seven hills would have been pretty easily yeah. decoded. Yeah. It's a reference to exile. Um, People. Yeah. yeah. Exiled the Jews exiled to Babylon. The Christians exiled to pre heaven or earth. Yeah. Okay, so exile. And but but what is it what is it about what is it about the exile that is like similar to to their time in Rome? Of course, Babylon was an empire. Empire, yeah. They were the people of God, and uh, the empire came in and oppressed them, brought them, uh, displaced them. You know, which many of the Christians in Asia, we said, were already displaced. And and actually, in the book of First Peter, he even calls them exiles. In, in he calls them exiles in Babylon, actually. Wow. In First Peter. <clears throat> so the re the reason that that John doesn't just call it Rome is because he's talking about Rome, but he's talking about more than Rome. You know, and and again, I, I believe under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, because this book, even though it's situated in a particular time, is actually timeless. Yeah, because Rome wasn't the first empire, and it was not the last empire. And there will, throughout history, has always been, and probably will continue to be, the, uh, opposition between empires and the people of God. And so what John is saying is, don't be afraid. Don't uh, accommodate to empire, um, and that's and that's one of the the, the things that is significant about the fact that they weren't there wasn't like this widespread you know hunting down of Christians and, and killing them. It was happening, but it wasn't. Most Christians probably were not under that threat. But actually what was happening, and we saw it in this letter to Pliny, was there are a lot of Christians who were asking the question, is it worth it? Is it worth it to oppose the empire? Is it worth it to resist the characteristics or the, the allure, whether it's avoiding suffering or gaining 
socially or economically or whatever, and many of them gave up. And so John is writing to them saying, don't give up and don't accommodate because we also know, and you'll see it in, in a couple, at least a couple of the letters next week. I don't want to blow it all for Bill. But, but it seems like some of them had accommodated. Uh, one of the, one of the is, which is the one that, that says, uh, you believe that you are rich, but you are poor, miserable, and wretched? Pergamum? I don't remember which, which one. Anyway. But, but basically what he's saying is, is essentially you guys have sold your Christian soul in order to have economic and social standing in your day. And so John is writing and saying, hey, don't give in to this. This is not who we are. And you may be persecuted for it, and you may be given to death for it, but ultimately know who the, who the, real, who the real king is. Seven characteristics of Babylon. This is, uh, this, again, this is from Scott McKnight, although I think it, yeah. It says, Babylon is anti-God. I think Rome probably would not have said that it was anti-God. It had just created its own gods. In fact, uh, Babylon, there, there's a connection between Babylon and Babel, or Babel, you know, from um, Genesis 11, right? And what were they trying to do? They're building a tower. Why? Trying to want to reach God. In, in essence, they were trying to be God. Right. Right. They were they were making a claim that hey, we can do this through our own power and through our own you know creativity and technology. We can actually you know, reach the level of God. And what was Babylon but that? And what was Rome but that? And so in a sense, for, for Jews and Christians, it, it, it was anti-God because they were claiming to be gods themselves. Uh, it was opulent. One of the things that you know about the Roman Empire, or maybe you don't know this, but is, is pretty commonly known about the Roman Empire is, the emperor lived very opulently, <laughs> opulently. Um, would have statues, monuments erected, and it wasn't just about the emperor either. They would do it, they would build whole cities out of marble just to show how great and amazing Rome was. It was always a show of power and wealth and success, and you know, everything was just over the top. Um, like I told you before, provinces would, would kiss up to emperors by erecting temples and statues to them. Uh, and so opulence was a, was a big part of it. It was murderous. Like I said, the peace of Rome was enforced with just crazy brutality. You know, crucifixion was, was part of the peace of Rome. It was concerned with image. Of course, this has to do with opulence. Okay? Many, things, many things were done at that time to enhance the social status of people. There was so much pretense uh, just among, among anyone. You would throw parties and that, and you would invite the hot people of high social standing 
in order to be recognized, to become a person of high social standing yourself. And this is something that Jesus addressed many times in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. The Pharisees would do this, and other, other people would do this, and, and Jesus always said, when you throw a party, actually, who should you invite? Invite the poor, yep. the outcasts, the marginalized. Invite them instead, because yep. if you do that, you won't be rewarded by society, but you will be rewarded by God. Yep. That's, a, that's a direct teaching against this sort of te- this uh, idea of that. Um, it was militaristic. Of course, we, we said that. It's economically ex- exploitative. Um, this is a quote from Craig Kester, who's one commentator on the book of Revelation. Rome's ability to govern subjected people depended upon its ability to provide economic benefits. In other words, it wasn't enough just to threaten people with harm, they actually had to convince them that it was to their benefit to go along with this system of empire. They had to believe that at some point they would receive either social benefit or economic benefit in order to do it. Uh, And it was arrogant. Rome had this idea that it was invincible, that that it just could never fall. We are exceptional. We are the greatest country in the world. And, or the greatest empire in the world, and we will, we will never fall. In fact, the whole world is lucky to have us because we are so great. All right? I, I just have a question yeah. to go back to the anti-God. Were they anti-our God, or were they anti, you know, false gods, the pagans that, had, you know, had their statues and da-da-da. So they were, were they also anti-that? No, they they were pro that. That was oh, okay. that was God. Okay. Or the gods for them. Oh, okay. Uh, but anti the Christian God. Right. You know what, what we would say. Or the the singular God. The one, yeah, yeah the, 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 capital the God of the Jews, yeah. the God of the Christians. Yeah. But in, in many ways it's because the because the Empire saw kind of saw itself as God. And sometimes the Emperor would see itself as God. It is the benefactor. It is it is the savior of all humankind. Mm. That's kind of how they, how they saw it. In other words, the world is so lucky to have us. Um, and what McKnight says, and I know a number of other commentators have said, is that this is, these are like characteristics of empire. Empires always think this way. They always think we are, we are invincible. We could never fall. The world is so lucky to have us. Um, we are the savior of the world. You know, they all have that, that, kind, of, that kind of idea. Um, and they all do it through show of force and coercion, which is why the image of the emperor or the empire or the dragon is always contrasted with the image of what? In, in Revelation. The lamb. The lamb, the sacrificed lamb. This is not the way the actual, the real God of the universe operates. How does the real God of the universe get things done? How does the real God of the universe save the world? Through self-sacrifice. And so the Christians were living that out in the middle of this show of force and power and all of that. They, you know, refused to steal. They refused to do all of these things, commit crimes and that, and if you read some of the material about how Christianity grew, a big part of that was self-sacrificial love of Christians. Um, so they, they took it to heart. 
Now, if you were one of the Christians in Asia at the time, and you knew the situation going on, you were living in the empire, and you had a neighbor accuse you of being a Christian, and someone like Pliny came along, what would you do? Or, let's say you wanted to be a blacksmith, you wanted to join a trade guild, and you knew that they met in temples, and they would have feasts, and they would sacrifice, or they would burn incense to the Roman gods or to the emperor. But, hey, you need to feed your family. What would you do? Hard to know, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, we'd all like to think that we would stand strong under the face of persecution. We'd all like to think that we would stand strong when all of these, you know, social status, all of these things that are enticing come along. But we all know that probably not all of us would. Yeah. Can you pack up and leave? <laughs> Go somewhere else. Roman Empire was a pretty big place. Yeah. But those neighbors can't move as fast as me. Yeah. Well, get rid of the neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, no, can't do that. <laughs> Eugene, Eugene Boring, and this is the last page of your the first notes that I gave you. He has six options. You could quit. And some people did this. You could lie. And some Christians did this. You know, to live another day, Christians could go through the motions of the ceremony. And you could rationalize it. And you could say, well, after all, the emperor isn't a real god, so I'm sacrificing to nothing. What's the big deal? Or you could say, hey, my family needs me. And... You know, just go through the motions and give lip service to it. But in the process, deny Christ. You could fight like the zealots. Wasn't, wasn't a very attractive option, honestly, for most. You could try to change the law. Also not an option in those days. Of course, we could probably... It's more doable for us today, probably. You could adjust, you could accommodate, basically. Uh, while keeping the main ideas and practices of Christianity, we can adjust them to fit modern times. That's what accommodation is, right? Well, we, we can't believe in those supernatural stories anymore because we're people of science. Uh, we have to avoid intolerance and exclusion. Those aren't, those aren't American values. Uh, I mean, those aren't Roman values. <laughs> we can adjust to civic religion. What's our civic religion today? Or you can not do any of those things and you could die. What's the most attractive option there? So the book of Revelation was written to people who were faced with those questions. 
Do you think there's something we can learn from it? Okay. Questions? Lifting. Ideas or things, thoughts that come through your head? There's a bit of a reflection of then and now. Okay, let's hear it. Well, if you look at the way the United States is right now with some of the ideals that are going on and the way that Christians are being perceived, even good, you know, not talking about the extremes necessarily, except for the other side, you know, the extreme other side, but that. kind of being forced to start to believe in this very very opposite of what yeah. we believe in in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And seeing a little bit more of that pressure, not necessarily that we're being murdered for it, but we're def- definitely being chastised for it. Because we believe the wrong we don't believe in, in everybody being equal. Mm-hmm. When in reality we do to an extent, but it's a little different philosophy behind it. We, yeah, we, we do believe that everyone is equal. Yes. But, but we, we, we do it in a different way than... Yeah. 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 But there's, a def, there's definitely a reflection of that um, in the Roman times. So we're kind of seeing that revisit. Mm-hmm. Um, although it's happened time and time again. Like the original Babylon or Babel and then um, yeah. Rome was the big one. Yeah. I was, I was in a conversation yesterday, um, and, and one of the things it made me think of is the fact that oftentimes Christians are being encouraged to live by other people's convictions mm-hmm. and not our own. Mm-hmm. And as long as we do that, as long as we live by other people's convictions, then we'll be okay. Uh, but if we live by our own convictions, by, bi- by biblical convictions, then you know we'll be kind of pushed to the margins and, and things like that in, in many different ways. Well, we are pushed to the margins because this is an old book. Why would we believe that? Right, yeah. <laughs> um, or, you know, even think about something like uh, the American dream. Is that, uh, is that part of empire? Yeah. You know, e- the ease and comfort of life, and that's, that's, that's the Economic. goal of life. Right. That, was, that was very much... Uh, Roman Roman Empire. Yeah. Right? It's the promise that if you if you conform, that if you value the things that our society values, then you know you'll be you'll be happy. Conformity for freedom. So that's right. What's that? Conformity for freedom. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, quotes on that one on yeah. freedom. Right. Versus the freedom of what, like a long, like the afterlife freedom. Right. Right. Uh, Allison, you had your hand up. Oh, I think just just exactly what you said. Um, I didn't even remember what I was going to say. Never mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, no. Why don't you think, think about the phrase <clears throat> inalienable rights? Yeah. And, and those are kind of embedded in, in us, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Right. I mean, pursuit of happiness is quite a bit of contrast to what's yeah. offered us. That's a little hedonistic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And because of the 
because just by chance or by, you know, we're in the United States, you know, I mean, we have those rights, but don't other people have, if we see them as being made in the image of God, right, what makes, what, what makes our empire special? <laughs> yeah, I don't know, it's, yeah. And I think, too, that, that deeply ingrained right to the you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's what makes accommodation such a tempting option mm-hmm. because it's the comfortable option, and we're used to being comfortable. Mm-hmm. As you were talking about that a few minutes ago, I was just thinking that there are so few times that we have probably had to make those life or death situations where, like, I do not have the ability to feed my family unless I bow to the empire. Like, that, we're just so rarely in those positions where we're in that desperate of a place where we really do have to rely on what God said, that he will provide for our needs. We don't know how, but that's, he said that he'll provide for our needs. And so if that, I mean, it's not going to require that I bow down to another God. So, you know, we, we're just not in that position. Right. But, but we are often in the position of, am, am I going to, do I, Uh, diminish my faith or sure. not live according to the dictates of my faith in order to get ahead financially, mm-hmm. economically, socially. Mm-hmm. We're in that position a lot. Yeah. I think. Well, just, uh, we read, I don't know if it was Kings or Chronicles, it was just a few days ago we read where um, one of the prophets was, you know, going on about what God was saying, but that. But people were going to the temple and doing all the right things, but then they'd come out and then they would go and sacrifice to another god. Mm-hmm. And I, it made me think of that saying about you know going to church on Sunday, yeah, and mm-hmm. then living a whole different life, yeah. you know, till the following Sunday, right? And that happens. Mm-hmm. I mean, it happens. Yeah. Yeah. They, um... One of the one of the images that you'll that you'll see in the book of Revelation is the prostitute, yes, um, which also represents Rome. But the prostitute, if you look in the Old Testament in the prophets, it always symbolizes idolatry. Mm-hmm. In other words, God is your husband, but you keep chasing after. Yeah. Um, and and actually, a prostitute is someone who has sex for pay, yeah. for economic benefit. Um, and uh, and and so, you know, that's John is saying. This is a this is a picture of, of Rome, mm-hmm. and it was also a picture of Babylon, right? Yeah. You go after idols for the sake of economic benefit. Yeah. Gary, I'm I'm aware that there may be a skewed understanding of Christian Christianity. Maybe people don't quite understand it correctly. Yeah. Uh, however. Um, I'm just speaking for myself. I, I have a hard time making other people the problem. I, I do. Sure. Because I, I have to look at my heart and say, how come I don't like this person? How yeah. come, what, what's that about? So I'm not suggesting that you say, oh, that's cool. You do what you do. I do what I do. Okay. I have to keep in mind that, you know, like with my neighbors, God loves them deeply. And mm-hmm. so I feel sometimes like I really missed the boat on that. 
Hmm. And I, it makes me frustrated. Yeah. But then God tells me, okay, look, you, you got to turn this around. You have to. You have to, you know. And so, and it, it's hard, but yeah. I can't, I, it, it's on me more. Yeah. As a Christian, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Uh, so, Let's see if I can if I can remember both of them. Two two responses, not responses. I, I agree with you. The first is when we look at the letters next week, you'll see a lot of criticism of the church, yeah. of saying you are not you are not actually living out what you are called. In, in fact, in most of them, there's some commendations, but there's also but I have this against you. Yeah. Right. That's not that's not about the Roman Empire. That's about the church. And so it's it's a call for self-examination, first of all. Um, what was the second thing? I knew I was going to forget. <laughs> maybe I'll, maybe I'll yeah, that's that's a that's the, a great point. The kind of thing that I, uh, or a loose correlation that I've been thinking about. I don't know how many people are familiar with this, but the, the screw tape letters yeah. and how uh, the the work of the powers of evil a lot of times is about distracting from what is good and a lot of times the victory of evil is almost more powerful when it's not like villainous people but like simple distraction mm-hmm. and yeah um, real, real threats are not not obvious yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. Well, and I think back um, when the Lord brought uh, the, the Jews into the promised land, and he told them to get rid of all the other yeah. people that because they would be tempted, and, yeah. and he knew that, that that would be a bad thing. So I'm thinking here we're sitting... You know, a country in a world where, you know, God's not going to, is not at this point in time destroying everybody so that we're not tempted. Right. You know? Yeah. So we have to be mindful of that and yeah. and make sure that we stay close to God, you know? So, so let me end with this, and I, I remembered what I was going to say in response. Remember that Revelation is a look behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. There, there is someone else who is sort of pulling the strings mm-hmm. and so it's not the people of the empire that are the problem all of us are prone to being deceived mm-hmm. uh, the apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6 our struggle is not against flesh and blood <laughs> but against the principalities, powers, forces of evil mm-hmm. in this dark world that's what he's talking about that's what he's talking about in Revelation he's talking about the principalities and powers of which every single human is a victim we're, we're both victims and perpetrators. Yeah. And so, so we have to remember that. It, our, our neighbors are not the problem. They're, who's, who's pulling the strings? And remember, you know, and, and again, you know, we could be tempted to say, well, empire is the problem. Well, actually the problem is, is the influence of the evil one. Yeah. The influence of yeah. Satan that's pulling the strings behind. And that makes me so frustrated. That is so frustrating. <laughs> I cannot tell you. Amen. I see people 
you know, do things, and then you go, oh, I'm going to another funeral. Yeah. And yet, I kind of have to believe there's something beyond all that yeah. that's pulling the strings. Yeah. So, and so John is saying, pulling back the curtains, don't be deceived. Mm-hmm. Know, what's, know what's really going on here. Okay. Lord, thanks for tonight. Thanks for your word. And I pray that now as we dig into the text of Revelation, that we will see it through your eyes. Mm-hmm. Thanks again for, for John. Thanks for giving this revelation to John. And, and help us to be able to understand it well, to be able to apply it to, to our time um, as you um, illuminate it for us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Should we read a certain? Are we focusing on us? Read. Yeah. I mean, you can read through the whole thing, but but actually go uh, through chapter three.